This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Recording from 1904, Alessandro Moreschi is singing Ave Maria. He is the last popular castrato and the only one ever to be recorded. Moreschi's soprano voice was manufactured. He was most probably castrated before puberty, a practice that transformed the boy's voice and body. We are listening to this song because Jennifer Flieger uses it to introduce the concept of mismatched women in her book from 2014, Mismatched Women, the Siren Song Through the Machine, published by Oxford University Press. A mismatched woman is a woman whose voice and body don't match. We'll discuss with Jennifer what it means to be a famous mismatched woman when new communication technologies are introduced. We'll talk about figures such as Dina Durbin, Keith Smith and Susan Boyle, and we'll listen to some of their songs. Make sure to check out Oxford's companion website to the book. The links are in the text description on our website and get acquainted with these unusual women and their voices. This is New Books in Sound Studies, a collaboration between the New Books Network and the Center for Media, Data and Society at the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. And I'm your host, Dmitrica Holdish. I uh, picked this opening sound for our discussion today because I feel like this recording of the last castrato can usher us into the main themes of your book. You call the castrato the cultural ancestor to the mismatched woman. Why is that? Well, because his voice and his body don't match. So uh, castrati were created in a way because their voices then could be pure servants to God or because they could replace women on an operatic stage. So their voices have been constructed at the same time that they're completely authentic. They, they come from their bodies. They're a result of operations done to their bodies. And similarly, mismatched women, the look of the mismatched woman and the sound of her voice don't coalesce into what we think she ought to sound like. 
And so I feel that in both cases, there's a desire to hear something that goes beyond the physical form, but that's absolutely reliant on what the body is like. Let's carry on with getting to know you a little bit better before we dive into the argument. You are okay. an assistant uh, professor in the Department of Media and Communication Studies at Ursinus College, where you teach courses in the Film Studies program. But tell us a bit uh, about your background and what led you to write the book. Okay, so I was trained as a violinist when I was young, and now I teach my children. Um, we ha they have teachers as well, but I work with my children every day on their little mini violins and violas so that we can have a kind of family band. So I've been interested in music for a long time. And when I went to graduate school at the University of Iowa, I worked with Rick Altman, who is famous for writing on film sound. And I wrote a first project was my dissertation. Um, and that was my first book called Sounding American, Hollywood Opera and Jazz. And that's a very strictly soundtrack based project. And while I was working on that, I happened to see some films by Deanna Durbin. And I thought, huh, it's awfully funny that she became so famous. I don't really understand what the attraction is. I really liked watching her. But hearing that she was the highest paid woman in America was kind of shocking to me. And I started to think about her relationship to Shirley Temple and to think about why is it that there's these moments in time when we seem to be interested in particular kinds of girls or particular kinds of voices. And I wanted to see if there were any other women like Deanna Durbin or anything I could do to explain Deanna Durbin. And that's how the project got born. So Mismatched Women, the siren song through the machine. I think this is a really impressive title. And the machine is quite an, uh, um, an important part of it, right? The book has six chapters and each chapter is organized in relation to a particular sound technology with a history of mismatched singing in mind. So this takes me to my next question, which is what is the role of technology in mediating representations of sounds and women, and in this particular case of mismatched women's voices? Well, first, I have to say that I need to thank Claudia Gorman for the book title, because I couldn't come up with a mm -hmm. good formulation of words. And she helped me think through a lot of different possibilities. So thank you, Claudia. Um, but in terms of the argument about technologies and mismatched women, I was noticing that Anytime we have an introduction of a new technology, this is a period that Rick Altman refers to as crisis historiography, when you're not sure what to call a technology or what to do with it or who has um, ownership over it and what it is meant to do and what it is meant to replace. I noticed at those moments, those are times when we find a really prominent appearance of the mismatched woman. And so it occurred to me that maybe there was something about that figure of the mismatched woman that would assure us that this new technology wouldn't take over what it means to be human. And that's where I started to see some connections. So in thinking about phonography, um, the first chapter of the book deals with The Phantom of the Opera and Trilby, two novels, in which you wouldn't normally think that phonography is a big part of those stories. They're both stories about women's voices who get stolen or manipulated in some way by a powerful male figure who is quite marginal himself and who uses those women's voices to his own ends. But in both of those cases, there are these phonographic references that were hugely important. In The Phantom of the Opera, there's a reference to these records that were buried in the Paris Opera. And these were actually real records that were buried there in the, in the opera house. And so it occurred to me that there's a way of thinking about the persistence of a living woman and her ability to escape capture by the technology um, that would be kind of relevant. In Trilby, 
there's not really a phonographic reference in quite the same way. The development of your, I guess, this book project around the history of each technology, I find, I found really, really exciting. But I think the whole, like the book has a, a different architecture as well, right? Like you have, uh, you have this uh, how to become a mismatched woman in four easy steps. The mismatched woman can exist with, within a story or without it. So it, it has these disguised origins. The mismatched woman is usually happier singing than speaking. And we're going to see a good example of that really soon in the podcast. The mismatched woman is someone out of the ordinary. Her body is not always coherent with her voice. There is a, um, she's either too young for her voice or too big or, you know, too authentic. And then there is the inability to have children. Out of all of the examples, I don't know why I landed exactly on Snow White. Maybe it's nostalgia because I grew up with with uh, Disney movies. So this particular one, uh, Snow White singing with a smile and a song from Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, released in 1937. Uh, I think many children can immediately recognize the song and the voice. So uh, I would like to talk a bit more about the place of the narrative and the identity of the mismatched woman and her complicated relation to speaking. But before that, let's just really quickly listen to Snow White. What's happening with the story of the mismatched woman? Why is it that she can have a story or not? And what's what's her relationship with speaking and singing? So this was a way for me to figure out how to explain why this particular figure stands apart from narrative theory and psychoanalytic theory. Because in the narrative descriptions of women's place in cinema and of their voices, um, I'll cite Kaja Silverman here in her book, The Acoustic Mirror. The woman's voice is often, at least in classical Hollywood cinema, trapped within the narrative. Silverman uh, builds on Laura Mulvey's article, Visual Pleasure in Narrative Cinema, to make the same claim about the voice that Mulvey is making about the image, that the image of the woman is spectacle. And similarly, if we think about the voice, the voice is something that, at least in a musical, would be a moment of attraction for viewers and then trapped again inside the narrative. And if you think about mismatched women's voices, I just don't really think that that structure works all that well to describe what they do. 
because their voices circulate very easily outside of the texts in which they've been, um, and I would use scare quotes here to say trapped. So if you think about Snow White, for example, Casaletti, who is the voice of Snow White, she continued to be that voice until she died in her yard. Little children would come over to her Los Angeles home and where she had a wishing well outside and she would sing like Snow White for them. She only could ever be Snow White, but she was never trapped within the narrative of Snow White. Snow White, like all the Disney princesses, exists in these multiple forms in which they're recycled over and over again to go on princess adventures, whether these are in storybooks or online or in um, apps or things like that that children play with in princess videos that they watch over and over again. So to say that she's in the story, which concludes with the marriage of the prince, isn't really true for Snow White. She's a figure and a voice that carries on in a lot of different ways um, and has done, as you pointed out, since 1937. So that's why I was dealing with the idea of the narrative and why we shouldn't use narrative theory to explain the mismatched woman. In terms of her being happier singing than speaking, this is just true of all the stories. If you think about Snow White when she's singing, that um, particular, all the songs in that movie, really, they deal, she's in nature, singing with birds and chipmunks and rabbits, all, all kinds of forest creatures. In these moments, the Disney princess is her true self when she's in nature. And it just happens naturally, right, in those films. Mm-hmm. Um, Deanna Durbin, too, in her films, she's often made fun of for how she's talking. She's talking too quickly. She's annoying to the figures around her. They won't listen to her arguments. And then when she starts singing, suddenly she's happier and everyone's taking her seriously. So there's a weird paradox going on there. But this is always true of the mismatch woman. When she's singing, suddenly everybody is going to listen to what she has to say in a way that they wouldn't when she was saying her lines in the film. So that's where those two explanations come from. Yeah. And are they connected? I'm just thinking now that you're you're talking about the... Um, narrative and and about this this not being taken seriously when speaking is it is there a connection between not being to articulate your story and not being allowed to speak it, does this result in actually having these disguised origins or this malleability that allows producers whoever they are to to i don't know to mold you according to what's you know appropriate at the time for them Yeah, I think that's a really good point. If you were imagining how the women would be put into stories, it would be producers or screenwriters or other people who would decide how we were going to see and hear the mismatched women. But that doesn't happen. She seems to take control over her song and then is able to produce that song in a number of different ways. So I think you're right. There is a connection between those two things, and it allows her a degree of freedom. One of the things I was trying to do in this book is to figure out how we could think differently about uh, women and representation, such that we're not always talking about being trapped by patriarchy. Oh, go, go. Isn't there some other way to consider what it is they're doing? Isn't there some way we can find agency for these women? And isn't there some reason why we were all so interested in Deanna Durbin or even Disney princesses? There must be something else there. Otherwise, nobody would care (laughs) to take a look at these people. Okay, so uh, now going to the second audio I picked for our discussion, it's Kate Smith. She's behind the piano and she's she's singing Dream a Little Dream of Me on (laughs) on a television program called the Kate Smith Hour. Birds singing in the 
Just hold me tight and tell me you'll miss me While I'm alone and blue as can be Dream a little dream of me Not many people know who Kate Smith is, although probably many of us would recognize the tune. I picked this example because you talk about her in your chapter on radio and television. She was a very popular radio host, but uh, um, TV producers were not so comfortable with broadcasting her image. Can you tell us a bit about her story in the context of this transition from radio to TV domination? Kate Smith was the woman I was least interested in writing about, in part because she was rather right-leaning. She was really patriotic. She was the things that I don't typically identify myself as being. But when I went to see her archive in Boston and read a lot of um, the clippings that she had saved about herself and listen to the records that I found um, in that collection, I became really attached to her story. So she began on Broadway. She came from Washington, D.C., and she was in a Broadway show. And her role in that Broadway show was basically to be mocked by her fellow stars for her size. And um, obviously, this got really depressing for her. And she wrote about feeling really awful about that. And so um, one night, she was seen by a record producer at Columbia who signed her to produce a bunch of songs. And she very quickly found a home on radio. She appeared on the Fleischmann's Yeast Hour, which was hosted by Rudy Valley initially. And so she was initially known on the radio as a singer, and then she got her own talk show. So she is an example of a mismatched woman who was listened to for what she had to say, but it's first because she became famous as a singer. But her noontime talk show was on for many, many years. And then she had an evening hour, which was a variety show, where she sang songs with a number of stars. And then this transitioned to a television variety hour. And I'm not so sure that. Um, TV executives were uncomfortable with her image because by the time she was on television, everybody knew what Kate Smith looked like. She had photos um, all over the place of her and her war bond drives and uh, things like that. On the covers of sheet music, too, she her, her face often appeared alongside drawings of the scenes that she was supposed to be selling in that sheet music. So people knew what she looked like. The interesting thing about Kate Smith on the air is that she was quite a good dancer. And this is something that I think a lot of people forget or want to disregard because of her size. She was, I think, six feet tall and she she was a little bit overweight. But she when she danced, she, she was so free and she would do these swing moves. And it was quite incredible to watch. So when you watch her on her variety show, uh, you're reminded of the way that she embodied her own her own self. And you're able to see that in a way that you couldn't on the air before. I feel like I've kind of forgotten the original question now that I'm rambling about <laughs> I think the original question is related to, um, so what's the impact on, of exactly of this transition from radio to, to TV, like including in her career, but also, I, I guess, in, in people's homes, TV becomes much more um, dominant? Ah, okay. So I think what Kate Smith does is make us feel really comfortable with the presence of television in our homes mm -hmm. because she was in women's homes every afternoon talking to them on her radio program. And you would hear updates about the day and about the news of the world and um, common women and their lives are often things that she would talk about. She would give cooking tips, cleaning tips. So she knew a lot of things about living in a home and about the world. And those things were shared on her radio program. So when she then had a television program, people were used to listening to Kate Smith talk and were quite comfortable with her. 
She had a lot of control over that television program, too. She wanted to decide on who the sponsors would be. She would do the sponsorship announcements herself so that you would really have a lot of trust and confidence in Kate Smith. She was one of the most trusted women in the nation, um, stemming from her war bond drive, I think, which was extremely well-funded. So um, when she was on television, she would often take letters from the public. She would take requests from people. She would sing songs specifically for people, often women, who wrote in asking for her to sing a song to them. And she would sing these songs uh, as the one you just played, I think, looking into the camera, sitting behind a piano, even though she didn't actually play the piano, but it looked nice back there. And and it felt good to watch Kate Smith on TV. It felt comfortable. And so you got that, the impression when you were watching her on a variety show like that one that the TV couldn't conquer Kate Smith. Kate Smith would exceed the television, mm-hmm. just like the other mismatched women and their technologies. That's a very important and very revealing point for me. Like we, I always imagined this relationship of technology mediating our relationship with women in general and with mismatched women in this case. But there is the reverse relationship of uh, women mediating our relationship with new technologies, right? Yeah, absolutely. And mediating relationships with each other through those technologies. Mm -hmm. So she was able to talk to all of these women over the air through her newspaper column that she wrote from the Adirondacks and then through her television show because she knew what she was doing with technology. And that was not that common for a woman to or for us to trust a woman with technology the way that we trusted Kate Smith. Now, this is uh, easing us in very well into the um, to the less and probably the most notorious woman you're talking about, Susan Boyle. Yeah. And um, she's singing a, a, I Dreamed a Dream and she, on, on Britain's Got Talent. And it was 2009. And she's mind-blowing and everybody's super impressed. So this is the era of the internet already, but it's also the era of the amateur. I dreamed a dream in time gone by When hope was high and life worth living I dreamed that love would never die I prayed that God would be forgiving Unafraid When dreams were made And used And wasted There was no ransom To be paid No song on song no one I think it matters a lot more That she was famous on YouTube Than it does that she was on Britain's Got Talent Because before the internet, of course, nobody other than those who were able to watch that particular version of that variety show would have been able to see her. Whereas millions and millions of people all over the world saw her while sitting at their work computers and were inspired by that particular um, scene. And the producers of Britain, Scott Talent, knew that, which is why there are so many shots of Simon Cowell and the other judges reacting to Susan Boyle. I think I pointed out in the book, there are almost more shots of them reacting to her than there are of her actually singing. And it's a way of condemning the viewer, right? You think, ah, I didn't think she would be good, just like they didn't think she would be good. What are the kind of judgments I make about women all over the place? 
And then you're allowed to kind of reprieve yourself because you think, well, now I've seen her. I knew all along or you think I could know the next time. But the chances are you probably won't. You'll go back to making those same judgments again, which is the depressing part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Susan Boyle, though, I think is a is she's a descendant of Kate Smith. She's very similar in a lot of ways. She's large. She sings naturally, like you pointed out. So Kate Smith wasn't a trained singer either. And, and neither was Susan Boyle. They, they're able to sing because they sang in choirs, they knew how, but they weren't operatically trained or, you know, they didn't go to a special school for singing or a conservatory or anything like that. And they seem to come out of nowhere, um, just like she did. So, yeah. And now uh, just to go back a little bit to the, to, to your, um, arguments or the four main elements to the mismatch, just to have a short recap. The first element was the uh, narrative, right? Like a woman can exist within or without a narrative. Second, she's usually happier singing than speaking. And third, she's someone out of the ordinary. And the fourth element is her inability to have children. Why is this so significant? Why is motherhood or the lack of it placing these women in this um, state of mismatch? I think it's because, again, to go back to what I was saying before about trying to explain them in a way that allows us to think about mismatched women without too much reliance on narrative theory or psychoanalysis. The way that people have written about women's voices in film studies has been by using psychoanalysis primarily. And the writings about voices and psychoanalysis always link us back to the voice of the mother. That's the first voice you heard in the womb. This is the voice, whether we hear it as... um, a terrifying sound, or as this beautiful sonorous bath, it's the mother's voice that we're always being drawn back to, psychoanalysis says. And the mismatched women's voice isn't really a maternal voice. The Disney princesses aren't motherly. Um, Susan Boyle didn't have children, neither did Kate Smith. Uh, Marion Talley's child was had to be kept a secret for three years while she tried to pursue her career in Hollywood. So I started noticing the absence of children in the discussion of these mismatched women. And I realized it's because they're always in a liminal state. Teenagers or past the age of reproduction is usually where, where we're talking about in order to understand their bodies and their voices as being mismatched. And it occurred to me that if mismatched women are there to protect us from technology or to assure us that technology won't assimilate us all to technology itself, then they're also there to assure us that they can't be assimilated to a kind of maternal structure either. Because the second that there's a child for whom that voice is perfect, for whom it coalesces and makes sense, then it's no longer a mismatched voice. There's someone out there in the world that says, yes, that is the perfect ideal voice for me. That's the voice I've heard in the womb. And then she belongs to somebody. And if we want to assure ourselves that humanity will persist and exceed technology, then the voice has to belong to no one and everyone at the same time. So I think that's why. Then this basically allows for, so this state allows for autonomy, right? Like a, a mismatch is, can actually be a desirable state, right? There is a potential for agency in it. Exactly. <laughs> that's what we're looking for. A way that you can be a woman in the world without having to be something that's rejected or something that's maternal. There has to be another way that we can um, imagine ourselves, something else that we can aspire to. Not that, you know, being maternal isn't lovely. I have children too, but it's it would be great if we didn't have to all be put into boxes. And the way that the female voice is usually talked about is by putting it into particular kinds of structures. 
that only can assimilate to uh, either horrific scenes like the sirens of Odysseus that call people Mm -hmm. to their deaths or to maternal scenes that uh, ring back to the womb. And I wanted to think about a different way of imagining a voice because that those scenarios don't make sense for this particular figure. So the third condition of the misfetched woman, as you noted, was that she um, sounds wrong or there's Mm -hmm. something wrong about her voice, but that the folks who are surrounding her have to work very hard to prove that she's real. Mm -hmm. And so there's this desire for showing the authenticity with the mismatched women. We can see that with Deanna Durbin and the way that critics were always talking about her throat. There were a lot of references to, yes, her throat is real. It just is too developed for her age or something like that. And with Susan Boyle, we saw it in the shots of that audition video where she's eating a sandwich at the beginning. It's a very depressing shot and a way of making us think that Susan Boyle is not going to be a good singer because look at her, she's eating that sandwich. How ridiculous, right? But it's also a way of proving that she's a real woman. She's just a person who wants a sandwich. She's hungry. She's been there for hours. She wants a Mm -hmm. snack. So there's always these efforts to prove that there's the, that the woman is authentic, that she's not been manipulated by technology. Before we say goodbye. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your current and, and future project. What I'm working on now, I am working on a video essay about the singing lesson in film. So I'm looking at the ways in which women are taught to sing on screen and what that has to say about our expectations for the female voice and whether we really think it can develop cinematically. So that's one thing I'm working on. And my other project is um, I'm interested in audiology and um, the situation of the hearing test and the ways in which expectations for hearing and what good hearing ought to be are um, determined in part by understandings of uh, race and class. So I'm trying to interview audiologists and look into the history of audiology equipment to think about how hearing tests are structured. Great. Uh, thanks a lot, Jennifer. Um, it was a really, really nice conversation. Uh, I really appreciate uh, your time. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sound Studies. Today we were talking about Mismatched Women by Jennifer Flieger. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm your host, Dmitrica Holdish. Goodbye!